This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Jason Silver. Jason is a startup trainer and author. In this episode, we discuss what the term startup trainer actually means, his time at Airbnb, decision-making frameworks for individuals and startups, and why scaling doesn't mean a startup slows down. Please enjoy my conversation with Jason Silver. Jason, I'd like to start with your background. You've had a really interesting background, like engineering. You've worked at some different startups. You've co-founded some stuff. You worked at Airbnb. Um, You know, we don't need to cover each thing specifically, but if you kind of had some highlights or just some like key learnings you had over your career that you could summarize, that'd be awesome. Cool. So you don't want to start from when I was six years old and how I went through every possible um, little detail, I guess, you know, happy to give the abridged version first, like thanks a ton for having me. It's, um, you know, great to get a chance to chat, excited to dive in and Cole's notes version uh, would be something like, engineer by training. I did a master's degree in in engineering, started out pretty deep on the technical side, worked as an engineer for a little while, realized 
like relatively early on in my career that I was uh, a lot more interested in business than I thought I was going to be. But um, also realized I had just finished a whole bunch of school and I didn't really want to go and do an MBA. And I got very lucky. I got what I would call like a practical MBA. I found a startup uh, CEO there really kind of took me under his wing. He put me into a lot of positions that frankly, I had no, they were way above my pay grade. He kind of said like, sit here and take notes and don't say anything. And I got to learn about, you know, fundraising, partnership, commercialization, all sorts of things like that, which was great. Um, I then had a software project on the side. It was taking up more and more of my time, blissful ignorance. Let's go start a company. What could go wrong? It'll be great. Um, awesome first experience, really enjoyed it, uh, wanted to go a bit bigger. My business partner at the time really liked where the business was at, split very amicably. I founded another company, did the whole VC thing, raised money, built a team, crashed the company. Um, very hard at the time to go through, but it's an experience I, I really wouldn't, I wouldn't trade and happy to talk about it. If it's interesting, might be a chat for another podcast, who knows? Um, but, um, after I crashed it. My confidence was very low. And, and to this day, I'm super grateful to one of my investors who I guess thought enough of me. Uh, you know, I had pretty much lost the majority of his investment. And he said, hey, I think you should go and talk to this team that I know. You might find them interesting. That wound up being the folks at Airbnb. Um, joined there to lead growth uh, originally in, in Canada. Worked in some global operations stuff from there. Had my first kid on the way. Team was reporting into me from all over the place. Uh, was on an airplane all the time. I was getting itchy to do startup stuff. Airbnb was great, but you know, I joined when we were like hundreds of people and experienced the like hundreds to thousands. I really loved the early stage, so I jumped in to do another startup very, very early on. There was like two people, half a slide deck. You know, no customers, no product in the AI space. Fortunate to work with a great team, build it up over some time, and then. Uh, Decided I wanted to like really, really focus on paying forward some of the incredible lessons that I'm, I'm super grateful I got to learn in, in my career. I wanted to pay it forward now and see what that was like rather than like, hey, let's wait till I retire and do some of that. And so now I work with founders, their executive teams, helping them build great companies that people like really love to work for, like genuinely enjoy working at these places. I love it. It's super fun. And I'm writing a book now called Quietly Crushing It. It's kicking my ass, but it's nearly done, which is great. And then that's kind of what's keeping me busy today. I know like it could be a, probably a whole podcast episode in itself, but I think it's very timely now with, you know, I see it almost in the news every day. A company is looking for a fire sale or an exit, soft landing, you know, valuations are coming down. But I guess if, if you had to summarize or maybe a few little advice for like listeners who are mainly founders, what would that be like when your company is like high flying, you've raised all this money, you know, maybe you attach your ego or your perception of yourself to that. And then, you know, things come crashing down, I guess, like if you were to summarize it in a few thoughts. There's a lot there, <laughs> but I think, you know, first thought is just being mindful about not attaching your ego to the company itself. You know, I, I definitely feel like for a big chunk of my career until I really kind of shifted my outlook. Uh, my ego was very attached to my work. Like I was my work, you know, like, Hey, Jay, you know, tell us about yourself. I am a COO. I am a startup founder. Those are things that I do for work. They're not me. Um, they can go up and down. 
it can be very challenging when, because of no fault of your own, sometimes it is your fault, but you know, a market dynamic shifts, the company might go in a, in a downward trajectory. You got to still keep your head on your shoulders. It may not be a judgment of you. Like that's the time when the company needs you to be at your best, you know, trying to avoid wallowing in the like self misery of like, oh man, I'm terrible. I can't do these things. You know, that's when the company really is going to need you to step up and say, okay, this is a company. It's a problem. I can solve it. I have the right people around. We're all going to kind of put our back into it and, and try to move the needle. And just briefly on Airbnb, just because it is such an iconic company and you were there quite early and experienced that growth, I guess you worked at different places, you founded your own thing. Was there something different? Was there something special about Airbnb and just like the culture, how they did things? I'm just, I'm always curious of these companies that are just kind of iconic. Like, was there something inherently different? I think, you know... Probably we could spend a whole podcast on this too. I mean, you could write a whole book probably on it as well. Um, you know, and I, I often get asked some version of what's different. What did you learn? Hard to kind of piece it down, pare it down rather. I think for me, just like the experience of how a company that kind of grew into a unicorn, just like aggressive up into the right growth, what kind of mindset is pervasive inside of that place? And it was very different than I thought it was going to be, quite frankly. Uh, the first, like, there was a lot more duct tape and chewing gum than I thought there was going to be. You know, you, you get a lot of people earlier stage and they think, oh, my God, a company like Airbnb is out there and they're like, you know, doing this incredible stuff. And it's probably so sophisticated. And like, in some ways it is. In other ways, it's duct tape and chewing gum. You know, like, I think it was in like December or January. Like, I think I got a sign up form for OpenAI's, you know, the chat GPT thing. You pay 20 bucks and get the membership. And it was like a Google form, like super hacky. And I think even these bigger companies find ways to, to get things done in, you know, the easiest possible way. And you polish it over time. And oftentimes I find we look at some of these companies that have just been incredibly successful. And you're like, yeah, that took years, years and years of scrappy behind the scenes duct tape and chewing gum and so if you're in the duct tape and chewing gum phase which lasts for a really long time it's totally okay and i think the other one that really jumped out at me is airbnb is a very very people first company and for me i think coming from an engineering background you know i was very metrics and execution first kind of a person you know the people were like one element of solving the overall puzzle but the, the puzzle was the puzzle you know like got to go and solve this problem all that matters is the outcome if it's not with evan we're going to solve it with somebody else we'll just swap him out he's interchangeable and when i went to airbnb i kind of learned that i was being very narrow-minded about this that like if you think about the people first and you treat your people really well and you understand your people they will take care of your problems take care of the people they'll help you take care of the problem and so now I really approach problems from the angle of first, who are the people involved trying to solve it? Who are the customers trying to buy it? What are they trying to accomplish? What's important to the people that are involved on the team? How do we get the team to work really well together? And if you can really focus on like cultivating the right environment for the people involved, that's when I find like the solution to a problem can really take off. And just to switch up a bit, you mentioned, you know, kind of paying it forward and doing that now versus, you know, when you're you're 80 or you're in the later stage of your career and you've done that kind of through like that startup personal trainer 
What is a startup personal trainer to you? What does that mean specifically to you? And how do you kind of pay it forward in your own way? This is another question I get a lot because the startup personal trainer is like a really weird term. It's, it's possible I'm the only one on the planet because I made the term up. Uh, the idea I had in my head was really just like, I wanted to do a thing for other execs and founders that I wanted when I was in that seat, but didn't really have access to. And there's lots of great resources out there. Like, don't get me wrong. Um, but there was a very specific like person working with me that I wished I could have had. And the idea of startup personal trainer came out of the idea of like a personal trainer in general, probably not shockingly. And if you've ever had a personal trainer, um, sometimes they kind of stand next to you and they tell you how to do an exercise, right? Put the dumbbells here, move your arms in, in this direction. Sometimes they're spotting you. So you don't like drop the weight on your head and kill yourself. And sometimes they want to get a workout too. So they're literally doing the exercise right now. And it's kind of like that for executives. You know, sometimes I'm describing a way of doing a thing that maybe they haven't seen yet. Hey, you're trying to set a goal. Why don't you try doing it in this? Sometimes it's like, okay, you're going to do this thing and we're going to like pair program it together. You work on it. I'll give you feedback on it. and It'll kind of evolve um, together in that way. And sometimes it's like, hey, I can just help you with this thing. Let's dive into it together. I'm interested in the problem. I'd like to help out. And we kind of drive it to the finish line. And so that's where this idea of like startup personal trainer came from. It's like this weird mixture of thought partnership and uh, a growth coach and honestly a therapist, because unless you've kind of sat in the seat, it's sometimes hard to relate to it. And, and when you are sitting in the seat, can't always, you know, whine to your board or complain to your employees and having someone to just kind of commiserate with can be helpful. And I've been very fortunate to make some monumental mistakes in business. So there's a lot of like, someone will tell me a thing that isn't going so great for their company or that they think they did wrong. And I could tell them a way worse screw up from my background. Just like, oh man, here's a time I did this, this and that. And uh, I find sometimes it really helps them, uh, you know, get recentered and focus back on the problem. I'm curious with having ups and downs, do you think that it has made you a better personal trainer there? Like I'm, I'm, Curious, like if you just had a career that was up and to the right from like university, you know, like take a Mark Zuckerberg or something like that. Do you think you would be as great of a coach, personal trainer as someone who has kind of had those ups and downs and different kind of experience? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, you'd have to ask Mark Zuckerberg whether he feels like his life has been up and to the right. And, you know, in some conventional metrics, I'm, I'm sure that one could argue that it has been. I'm sure that guy has had some monumental challenges in his life. And so I, I think like we all kind of have our ups and downs. And I think the question is like, what do you take away from those? The value for me with doing the help that I do with a lot of founders is I've just been very fortunate to experience a really wide breadth of different situations in a relatively short amount of time. Uh, so you, know, you get to experience what it feels like to be involved in an Airbnb on one side of the spectrum and on the other side of the spectrum, what it feels like to put a company they're both equally valuable to me in, in all sorts of different ways. And I find that it just helps me have an extra kind of tool or experience in the box to be able to say, hey, I've been in something that sounds like that. Here's what my experience felt like. Here are some things that we tried that didn't work, or here's some things we tried that really did work. And just getting that out into the open and discussing it through, you know, I, I can't imagine what it would feel like in life for me to feel like everything I've ever done has ever always been like perfectly successful. I, I think it honestly be boring. I don't know what you learn from that. I probably would have been getting lucky and luck is nice, but not a phenomenal strategy. So 
ups and downs, the downs suck in the moment, but I find that they just lead to more ups later if you can learn how to pull out the lesson for I like the analogy to kind of like a personal trainer if you're doing fitness. And I think the interesting thing about like if you think about physical fitness is, yes, there are some, you know, like sleep, eating properly, you know, the right amount of working out. But obviously it's different to each individual. So how do you see it kind of in a startup land where, you know, sometimes people will throw out generic advice that they think is applicable to every single person that's out there. I guess what have you seen from your experience of like, hey, that's some really generic advice. And actually, we should be looking at that specific founder, their circumstances, their background, and finding something that's tailored for them, I guess. A lot of advice is very generalized. And I think it's really hard. Uh, it's really hard to keep in mind that when someone is giving you advice with the best of intentions, like their advice is by definition quite colored with their own experience and their own background. And so something that's really great for me might be really great for me and really terrible for you. And I think keeping that in mind can be very, very challenging. And I often am working with folks on like, it's very hard to solve a generalized problem. You know, not that I work with people on this particular problem, though I would, I would really love to. If you take a problem like we got to solve world hunger, it's so big, it's so general that taking the first step can be, you know, really quite challenging. The question is, how do you break this down into very specific things um, you can go and do? In the context of a startup, maybe you're trying to grow revenue and the challenge is revenue is not growing fast enough. That's not a super helpful problem statement because there has to be some specific reasons why. Maybe our products aren't being utilized in the way that we want. Maybe our um, sales cycle is longer than we thought it was going to be. Maybe the price we can charge is lower than we were hoping for. But as often as possible, if you can like drive your problems down to very, very specific problems, they're often much less sexy. They're not, they don't seem as like banner type problems, but you drive them down to these very specific problems. You solve these specific problems. And it's the sum of these very specific solves that adds up to something really big when you're looking. What are some common problems that you've seen with founders, whether, you know, it could be, you know, within a team dynamic or founder dynamic or, you know, you know, preconceived notions. I guess I'm just very curious if you see a lot of similarities or has it been very unique each time? One thing I'm super grateful for with what I do now is I used to work in inside of a single company and I would get lots and lots of learnings in the context of this one place. And now what I get to do is I get to work with multiple companies and I get to see how different companies do the same things, right? Every company does goal setting, you know, in some way, shape or form. What happens when we try to do goal setting a certain way of multiple different companies? It's so awesome for me because it, it, it winds up being like learnings that could take a decade, kind of get crammed into like a quarter or a year, which is really fun for me. And it lets me kind of take that and share it out with all the folks that I work with. So there's definitely some common threads. They present in different ways. But I find if you poke at a lot of problems that tend to happen across multiple companies in enough ways, you tend to get down to like a small handful of root causes that you don't have to squint too hard to see that they're, they're quite similar. An example I would give you is prioritization. This probably gets talked about a lot. Um, in my opinion, I don't think startups fail because of what they can't do. I think they fail because of all the things they can do and an inability to prioritize. And something that I think I, I overlooked and I see uh, a lot of founders overlooking as well is 
when you prioritize more things, like for each new thing that you add to your list of prioritization, the harder it comes, it becomes for anybody in your company really prioritize very well. So if you have one thing, it's clear. If you have two, it's worse than, you know, half as clear. And the further out you get to the edges of the company, the further away you get from the leaders who should in theory have the most kind of clarity on the prioritization, the worse and worse and worse and worse it becomes and it manifests um, in a lot of ways. So really trying to be clear about like pick one thing. We are going to do this one thing very, very well. And the challenge I see a lot of founders go through is, um, you know, thinking about opportunity cost. Well, if we go after this one thing, aren't going to accomplish these three or four or five or six or seven other things. Meanwhile, we kind of fail to recognize that like, sure, we might make some progress on those things, but on this one thing that matters more than anything else, we're going to make less progress and, and that's not helpful for us. And so I really try to have people focus on like, let's pick one thing. We're going to do this one thing incredibly, incredibly well. And in three months or six months or nine months or however long you want to set, if nothing else was true but this one thing, we would be happy. What would that one thing be? And it's so clarifying for the company when we have this, because then there's no question about like, what's more important, uh, growing revenue or increasing customer satisfaction or growing revenue or improving our, our brand or growing revenue or, you know, employee experience. I can't tell you which one of those is going to be the most important. I can tell you that you will really move the needle on them. You can pick one and say, of all the things we could be doing, this is the one. And if we do 100 things over the next quarter and 99 of them sell, but this one goes through and we make an incredible amount of progress on it, we're going to feel really great. If you can make that clear to your team, you will instantly be in a better place and just really trying to have I guess, the discipline to say, yes, we could do all of these things. Yes, we might make progress on all this stuff. What's the one thing, especially at the earlier stages? You just, we haven't earned the right yet to go and try to tackle 15 markets with 27 different products. I think that's a great way to look at it. And I, I definitely see that as a common problem amongst founders. Um, would love to chat about the book because I think a lot about what we're chatting about is it, it will be in the book or similar ideas and frameworks. But I guess like two questions to the book is like, what's it been like writing a book from like an author writer perspective? And then second, we can talk a bit more about what is the book about and kind of the content and everything there. Cool. Which one do you want to do first? How it feels or what? How it feels. Um, just to hear you say like from the perspective of an author and writer makes me want to like look behind me and see who you're talking to. Um, odd you know it's not a thing i ever thought i was going to do but at the same point it like checks a lot of boxes for me and that it i hope will be an impactful thing that can reach um, a lot of people and it's a really new and hard challenge which is kind of how it feels um, the answer is like brutal is is my experience with it is it's um it's very self-reflective um i find there's like a lot of negative self-talk of just like you're sitting there trying to write something down. I'm like thinking to myself, no one's ever going to pick up this book and read it. Why am I investing the time in it? You know, who am I to think I can write about this particular topic? So I'm finding I'm learning a lot about myself as I'm going through the journey and what motivates me and like, why am I even trying to push through that voice in my head um, that we all have? And then I also find it's like, it's quite clarifying. And when it's clarifying, it's quite rewarding. You take a concept, 
you know, the stuff I write about, I, I think has the ability to be quite impactful, but um, at a high level, it can also be quite boring, you know? And so how do you take a concept that um, has the potential to really impact somebody's life and make it interesting enough that they actually want to sit down and read it for a few minutes? You know, it's tough. And so to go through the process of how am I going to structure this idea? What matters? How do I carve away all the fat? So we're just left with the important stuff. You know, I don't have a long attention span either. Like, I really want people to get the point. How do I strip it all down to its essence? And when you get it there, it's like painful to get it there. But when you get it there and the idea is crisp and clean, and then you can take that idea and, you know, share it in a book or talk to people about it. Uh, it does feel, you know, really, really quite rewarding to say, ah, I have this thought that had always been jiggling around in my head. And now what I have is like a really clear, actionable, um, concise concept of what I'm trying to put out in the world. So the short version is like, is really hard and it can be rewarding too and remains to be seen whether the challenge is worth the reward but right now i'm uh, i'm pushing through and we're nearly it's just about we're in the very final stages of it so been a journey for sure i'm excited to pre-order and get that there i guess from like a content perspective like i guess what inspired you what was like the overarching like idea and i guess like what has the book become so the inspiration is um, a, a challenging topic for me. It came out of like a rough moment in my life that I'm, I'm happy to talk about. And, you know, if you want to dive in, we can go for it. But it's, uh, it's a tough one. Um, a little over three years ago, I lost my sister to cancer. And when that happened, when anything like that happens, I assume in, in, in people's life, but, but certainly in my own life, it was a big jolt. And the jolt for me was to just kind of take a second and, and you know, look around a bit. And uh, what I realized is I'd been charging in the same way for pretty much like my entire life. You know, school, engineering, working as an engineer, startups, you know, like just running 100 million miles an hour as fast as I can. I never really questioned, like, is there another way to do this? And when that happened... Um, when my sister passed, I, I, I like launched into this period of like intense experimentation. Like, I'm going to try this thing and try that thing and try this thing and try that thing. I read like every single book I could get my hands on from management theory to like neuroscience and mindfulness. And if I read a thing that said, hey, if you do this, it'll make you feel or do better. I tried it. And I tried all these things. And I slowly started to figure out what was kind of going to help me cope. And as I started figuring this stuff out, I started thinking about how can I apply this to how I'm working? And once I started deploying it to how I was working, this like experimentation mentality, I started seeing that like, actually, I kind of was just working a certain way because it's how everybody around me was working. And it was this like preconceived notion of how you work that was in my head. And when I started breaking that all down and sifting through it, I realized like, there's another way here. I can work in a completely different way where I can still have the impact that I feel I need to have, but it doesn't need to come at the expense of a lot of stuff that's happening outside of work that's also very important. I don't have to put in the 100-hour week if I don't want to, to have the impact that a 100-hour week um, could potentially have. And that's kind of where the book came. I, I didn't intend for it to be a book. It just like was at first a coping mechanism. And as I started to prove things for myself, I was working on a team at the time that was very supportive of me and I would talk about it with them and they would start trying to do some stuff and they would give me feedback on it. 
And then I started coaching folks and sharing some of these lessons and I was getting really great feedback about it. And it just kind of turned into, hey, there's a thing here, I think. Like, I really want to try to take this and share it and, and help some other folks who I hope don't have to go through what I went through to get here, but can get some of the benefits um, based on the journey that, that I went through. That's kind of like origin story of the book, so to speak. I appreciate you sharing that. And I guess, so like the underlying theme there to me is kind of hustle culture. And, and we definitely see that a lot in the tech space of, you know, it's like who's working the hardest, who's like taking a photo of themselves at 11 p.m. at the office or something like that. I, I guess like, how do we kind of change that? How do we fix that mentality? Is that mentality bad? I, I, I guess it's just like, is it right or wrong or is it kind of gray area or is it like, what should we be prioritizing, I guess? Yeah, it's like right or wrong is a great question. And like one of the things I really struggled with early on when I started coaching folks is I'd regularly get a question about like, hey, I'm doing X, is that right or wrong? Cool. How do I answer that question? Like I am not, you know, overall purveyor of what is or is not right or wrong. You know, there, as you mentioned earlier, like it can be very specific to your particular situation. Uh, what I learned is I need to give some kind of an answer in this situation. Otherwise, I'm not being helpful for people. The thing that I can do is I can help people see whether what they're doing is or isn't aligned with their intention. So if you know what you're trying to accomplish, an, ups, an outside observer can help you figure out whether or not you are aligned with that intent or not. And so when you think about hustle culture and working until 11 o'clock at night, it's not up to me to tell you that's not the right thing to do. You know, if somebody really has taken a look at their life and says, you know what, like the most important thing for me right now in my life is to achieve some measure of success in terms of job title or amount of money that I'm earning or whatever. And the way I want to do that is by pouring myself into work and working like an animal. More power to you. That sounds great. That's right for you. I think where it can get really dangerous is when you don't put that thought in. You haven't figured out, you know, what is my intent here? Why am I doing this important, big thing part of my life, like in the way that I'm doing it? And then you look back years later and you realized, oh no, like I really wasn't living the way I would have liked to have been. You can't get that time back. And so for me, it's a lot less about like what is objectively right or wrong for folks, whether hustle culture is objectively right or wrong and, and more about like the intent behind it. Why are you doing what you're doing? Is that truly the right thing for you? Are you lying to yourself? Are you clear to yourself? And if you can be clear on your intent and 100 hours a week is what feels like the right thing, get after it, man. Fill your boots. Sounds like the right thing. Go and do it. The alternative is if it's not, you know, now you at least know and you can start looking for, for another thing or another way. Is there kind of like a framework, exercise, or thought process that people can go through there? Because I've definitely encountered folks that, you know, if they're working 100 hours a week, they're, they're completely happy, they're passionate about what they're working on, they love it. But then I've met other folks who, you know, maybe are working really long hours, but, you know, they don't really want to be like, they, they'll tell you like on a one-on-one -on -one situation like that, that's not for them. I guess, how does people like think about that is like before they jump into it or even while they're in it, how can they like really figure out their true priorities and not be, you know, maybe, maybe the work environment they're in is kind of pushing them to a side. 
the book I'm writing is kind of the idea is this idea of like quietly crushing it. You know, you have people who are like quietly quitting with people that are like full on resigning. Like there's this third option that we don't think, which is like find a different way to crush it. Right. And the whole idea is, you know, we, you want to focus on the impact you're having. Right. And that impact could take you many hours. It could take you minutes, you know, but the point is, are you having the impact uh, that you want to have? And I'm a firm believer because I'm writing a book about it now that you can find a different way to work and still have this incredible impact that you want to have without it coming at the cost of it's the only thing in my life. And the only way to do it is by putting in as many hours as I possibly can. And the whole concept is this idea of like working smarter, not harder. So you brought up generic advice. This one sits at the core of what drives me mental. Like you hear it all the time, work smarter, not harder. I do not know what that means. Nobody ever explains how. I don't wake up in the morning and say, hey, I have to get this thing done. Let me find the dumbest possible way that takes the most possible hours. And like, I'm going to do it that way. I'm trying to work smart. Like, what? I don't know what to do. And so what I wanted with the book was to provide like very clear and tactical answer to that question. Here's a list of very specific challenges that a lot of us face at work and at least one very specific tactic that you can take to do this thing differently and effectively work smarter, not harder, have the impact that you want to have um, with less or, or different effort. And the, the first thing that kind of came out of that goes to this question about like your intent, your priorities. We get a lot of advice to like do a lot of self-reflection, self-awareness. You got to think about yada, yada, know about blah, blah, understand your strengths, like all great stuff. I don't mean to like demean it. Uh, but the challenge I find in most of our cases, we're, we're all quite busy. And any real self-assessment takes a lot of time. You know, you're not just going to like off the side of your desk, figure out what your priorities are in life right now. Because you're probably going to be working really hard on a thing that feels like the right thing for you. It's not going to be obvious. You, you have to take the time to kind of carve out and step away from whatever it is going on in your day to day to get that perspective. And so what I try to cover in the book is like a playbook to help solve this. Like number one, you have to start by creating more space. This is all about efficiency. There's just like a set of very common workplace slowdowns that happen. And if you can solve these workplace slowdowns, you can get the same amount of work done in less time. And if you can do that, then you can use the time that's left over to then go and what I call like align your experience. You can use this space to figure out what matters to me and how do I deploy myself against it in a way that I'm more likely to enjoy. And I think the order is usually backwards in my experience. We try to start with the self-awareness stuff, which takes a lot of time, yet we don't have the time to invest in it. So we either don't do it or we don't do it justice. So you got to start with this idea of like, how do we create more space? What are some ways that people can create more space? I guess, you know, and obviously that's different to everyone. Maybe some people have kids and busy lives and everything. And other people are maybe just fresh out of university. And maybe those are different commitments that they have. So I guess like, what are some ways that someone can create more space easily? Cool. I'll give you an example. So common thing we're all doing at work. We all have to make decisions at work. Um, there's kind of two things I talk about uh, in the books. The first on decision-making, that is. And I'm a huge decision-making nerd. I could talk about this for hours. It always surprises me how 
decision-making is such a fundamentally important thing. We're making decisions like all day, every day, and nobody really teaches it. Like there's not a, I'm sure maybe there are textbooks. I never found them, but it wasn't a thing I learned about in school. You know, it's not a thing that is easy to kind of work on. And so I wanted to provide a, an outline of two things. Like number one, how do you make better decisions? And number two, how do you make better decisions faster? And so let's pick on the better decisions faster since you're asking me about like, how do we create a little bit more space? So there was this study uh, a little while ago. Uh, I think it was done by McKinsey. They got a whole whack load of managers and they had them fill out this big giant survey, breaking down like where they're spending their time and how they think about uh, the time that they're spending. And what they basically found is the average manager is spending roughly like 37, 38% of their time on decision-making and that more than half this time is wasted. If you do the math with whatever the actual number was, it worked out to like a little bit over eight hours a week, which is a full work day. So to recap, a bunch of managers self-reported that they are wasting nearly a full day of work every single week on wasted decision-making time. They're not saying that all the time they spend on decision-making is wasted. This is just the amount of time on decision-making waste, a full day a week. And so you start to think that through and you think, well, no big deal. I'm not a manager. I'm not wasting that time. Well, guess who they're wasting that time with? They're not sitting in a room by themselves trying to make this decision. They're doing it with their teams in a room and like, that's not super fun. And so I think like in the startup community, we tend to believe like as you scale, everything just gets slower and there's nothing you can really do. So we'll play a bit of a guessing game. Um, I'm going to tell you a company. You have to try to guess how fast they can make a decision. And I'll give you bonus points uh, if you can tell me who it is. I don't have Jeopardy theme music. Maybe we can like... Sounds good. Okay. 400,000 people. $175 billion budget. Pretty long-term objectives. The stakes are incredibly high um, to the point where an incorrect decision could uh, have life impact. Like someone could lose their life if we make the wrong call. And there's no chat. No Slack, no email, no cell phones to improve communication. Any ideas who that is? 400,000 people. Actually, the easier question is how fast can they make decisions? I know I primed you to think probably faster. If they have no Slack, no email, I feel like it's got to be days that it would take to make a decision. And then 400,000, 175. I wouldn't, it's got to be some kind of, industrial company am i right yeah cool so 1960s nasa and it's 1960s nasa that working on the apollo mission right they had this incredibly audacious goal we're going to put somebody on the like most of the technology they needed had never been invented the techniques hadn't even been tried what uh, if you go back and you look at like how they accomplished this obviously landing on the moon is unbelievable but you peel back the onion a little bit, you say like, holy, like, how did they accomplish this? They were regularly able to raise an issue in the morning. And by the close of business that day, solve the problem, allocate budget to the problem, make all the decisions they needed to make around the problem so that it's resourced and they're ready to execute against it first thing the next morning. A single day, 400,000 people, we make the wrong call, someone's going to lose their life down. I don't know who's listening and, you know, what kind of companies are, but like, imagine your team, pick any decision that your team's making on a regular basis. Are they being made in under a day? 
like the average is usually much higher. And so what that showed us in 19, the 1960s is that you do have to inherently slow down decision-making as you scale. If you don't approach decision-making the right way, you will slow down. And so the question is, how do we avoid losing out on this like full day of work that like we're just wasting on unnecessary decision-making? And if you dig into this a little bit further, um, what you find is actually we're creating conditions for really slow decision-making kind of without realizing. So I won't spend a lot of time on the whole case for diversity. Hopefully by now, like that is ironclad logic. You have a more diverse team. You're going to make better decisions. You will reach better outcomes, et cetera. If you don't believe in that, you know, go, go do some research or we could have a, a, a chat about it another time. But the, the thing that's interesting when you start thinking about that is as human beings, we're, we're like very social animals and we're wired up for consensus. It feels very uncomfortable to disagree with somebody. We want to try to agree as, as often um, as we can. The problem is, is that as we scale, we're kind of creating the conditions for less and less agreement to happen. The more people we get, the more diversity, the more diversity of thinking we have there, the more disagreement we're by definition going to have. That's why we're building a more diverse team. We have people with different backgrounds, different ways of thinking, different experiences. They're going to disagree with each other more. And that's actually what we're trying to do. But the key thing we have to recognize here is as we're building these more diverse teams where there's going to be more disagreement, the key to making decisions faster is that we have to learn to disagree better. So I, the whole thought here is the better we disagree, the faster we're going to decide. Nobody really teaches us how to disagree really well. So how do we do that? Maybe I'll pause there, see if I have any questions before I launch into that. Been like monologuing for a no, second, plus I need a drink of water. I just think it's very interesting because I, I think, you know, you look at most companies and whether it's, you know, the public perception of them, but, you know, it's always about innovation and like go to market and all these things like that. But, you know, if you read, you know, I, I read the Amazon books recently and it was like, Jeff Bezos has a thing about like irreversible decisions, right? Like if something can be reversed, yeah. like do that very quickly. If it can't, like obviously it will take longer time. But it's interesting to hear those things from the most innovative companies. And you're talking about prioritization in terms of company as well as also individual and making those decisions. So I, I, that underlying theme is just very interesting to me. Some decisions certainly could be made faster than others. I think one of the things I see a lot of groups of people, whether it's a team at a company, a bunch of your friends, whatever, whatever it might be, is we like inherently push for consensus or agreement when we actually don't need it. And I think the thing to think about is like great decisions need alignment, not agreement, right? You and I can go and work incredibly effectively on a thing as long as we're aligned on it. That doesn't mean I have to agree with you. You know, you might make a decision to do a thing in a way that I don't agree with. Great. Am I aligned with it? You know, do I understand it? Can I execute against it? And I think without realizing it, we're so often driving towards this point where like, you know, Evan and I are in a room, we're talking about a thing and I have to, it is like my obligation to convince Evan that my perspective is the right one. I don't have to do that. Right. We just fall into that trap because decision making discipline is like often not there because we don't really spend a lot of time thinking about or learning about 
what decision-making discipline looks like. And so the number one thing I recommend like anyone can do, if you were only going to do one thing to try to speed up decision-making on your team, at your company, wherever it might be, number one thing, before you debate anything about the decision, decide who's going to decide. Before we launch into whatever this big decision is, just stop. Evan, are you deciding this? Am I deciding this? Are we going to vote? Are we going to get to consensus? Again, there's no right or wrong way, but the challenge that you have when you don't do this upfront is you create the conditions for endless debating, which like we could label as analysis paralysis, right? If Evan's making the decision, then we can go into as much analysis as Evan tells us we need until he says, I have enough information to make the decision and we make it and we go. If we decide we're going to make a vote, great. We're going to take a vote on X date. Whatever we have debated, discussed, whatever information we have on that date is the right amount. At that moment, we then stop. Everyone puts their hands up or they don't. We take a vote and we see what happens. If it's consensus, then we got to argue until everybody's on the same page and we do genuinely have that agreement. Not my preferred approach, but you know, you can go that route. But by being crystal clear about who is actually going to make the decision, by like deciding who is going to decide first, we understand immediately how we're going to make this call. And you really reduce the amount of time you spend in like unnecessarily trying to get people to agree with some central point versus making sure that, okay, we have what we need to make this decision. I can now go and make it. The job I have to do is not to get everyone to agree with me. I have to make sure we're all aligned and then we understand the decision that I made. It will speed up pretty much every decision you're trying to make. If, okay, great. We have to decide whether we're going to left or right. Whose decision is it? Who's deciding? It's Jay. Great. I got it. Let's all let the debate go. Let's all discuss it. I've never heard that frame like that, but that is it's very interesting. That's cool. Thank you. There are other bits and pieces, but like, you know, hop into the book. Hopefully you will, uh, you will love it. You read about it there. Well, it definitely piques my interest. And I love that kind of framework. And I, yeah, I think just this whole conversation of, about like, you know, moving faster, being more efficient. Like, it seems like the underlying theme is that decision-making process, whether it's, you know, individual group company-wide. So I think it's really interesting that you broke it down like that. And that gives me a lot to think about, actually. I, I also remember from our, our pre-chat, too, we talked about Huberman uh, and, like, that podcast and, like, that thinking. And I guess we've talked a lot about, like, decision-making and that stuff. Um, but would you talk a, a little bit about, like, is there, like, a fitness element in the book? Or, like, what's your belief there about, like, kind of the healthy body, healthy mind, fitness, everything there? Ooh, lots of questions in that <laughs> one question. So uh, my belief on it is... Yeah, I, I listen, I'm not a doctor, so like take with grain of salt uh, by, by all means. My personal experience is it's all connected. Like my mindset's not right. It usually has some kind of physical implication at some point, whether it's in that moment or down the road. If my body's not in a good spot, it probably is going to have some kind of mental implication at some point down the road, you know, or, you know, right in that moment. I think they're like, they're necessarily interconnected and, and, you know, I think professional athletes get this particular thing, right. You know, there's a lot of professional athletes there who are not just training 
their bodies, they're training their minds. You know, they have to understand how to show up mentally. You look at tennis players, you look at the F1 drivers, probably anybody playing at the, the professional level. You have to understand how to show up mentally. A lot of times in the professional space, a lot of the focus and energy is put into like the mental side of it. You know, how am I, sorry, not the mental side. Like, how do I actually go about doing this job? The tactical skill, right? Your, your free throw or your jump shot. We don't spend a lot of time talking about the mental component of it. It's a, the taboo topic from time to time. You know, it's not something that people generally like to dive into. But how do you make sure that like your mind's in the right spot and you're showing up to work in a, in a way that like you're ready to like engage and enjoy? That can have all the difference. If work is feeling like a drag and every day, you know, it's just like, I got to go into work again. I don't want to like, you're not going to do your best work. And there's like plenty of research that shows the more you enjoy your job, the better you're going to do at it. And the better you're going to do at it, the more you're going to enjoy it. And so how do we focus on like cultivating ways? And there are ways to like enjoy what you're doing a lot more so that you do better at it. You enjoy it more and you get this like very fortuitous cycle that just goes up and up and up. I'd love to jump into the quick fire round. And I always uh, like asking this question when someone's a, an author writing a book, but what is your favorite book or maybe just something you've currently currently are reading or maybe have read recently? Probably the whole thing kind of felt kind of quick fire so it's fun to label this as quick fire. <laughs> um, and it is very weird for me still for you to, for, to hear you say, like, as an author, I think, um, you know, it's... Uh, it's fun to try that on for size. So thanks for, thanks for landing the credibility. Um, books I'm reading now, I like half listened to Outliers by Gladwell um, in an audio book. And I realized, hey, I've only kind of half listened to this. So I'm reading the actual book now, which is uh, really good. I'm also reading this book called um, African Samurai, which is uh, like a, a historical, uh, I don't know what the word's escaping me, but like it talks about uh, the first foreign-born samurai in Japan, um, which is, you know, I, I don't know why you picked these things up, but super interesting story of this guy who was born in Africa, um, you know, became a slave and ultimately wound up becoming the first foreign-born samurai in Japan. A very interesting and, and unique story, reading that one. Um, favorite books, super hard have a hard time with that one. I think you have a business audience. I'm a big fan of The Ride of a Lifetime by Bob Iger, which is uh, which is uh, kind of about his experience as a CEO. I really also love Let My People Go Surfing, which is maybe a little bit lesser known uh, by the guy who founded Patagonia. They were really on to a lot of like these big cultural norms inside of companies now, a lot before they were really... Uh, they were really the cool it thing to do. So that, that one's an interesting read too. Yeah, plus one for those last two. I, I've read those and those are fantastic. Uh, what are you most excited about in the next year, uh, personally, but also professionally? The book. I'm like, I, probably those go in the same bucket for each. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about you know uh, launching the book and and learning from the next kind of chapter of the experience. And I'm very excited to get it out there in people's hands and start to get a lot more feedback and and hopefully help some people too. So I, I think that one that one would go right at the top. 
Perfect. Uh, then last question before I open up the mic to you, but how do you deal with hard times? You've had your, your fair share, I'm sure, throughout your life. Has, is there anything that you do that kind of helps you out? Probably about a hundred things I do that don't help me out. Um, yeah. It's funny you say quick fire. I feel like I'm supposed to have an answer in the moment for this thing, but, um, but uh, I think a big learning for me over the last little while is, is uh, to slow down. And uh, I think I've learned over time that like the slow way is the fast way. And I got a lot of advice earlier on when I was running a hundred million miles an hour, you know, Hey dude, you got to like slow down. And I never wanted to, I felt like this is my edge, you know, like I, I can run fast. I, I work really hard. I put in a lot of hours. Like this is my edge. If this goes away, like what am I left? And when my sister passed, I was kind of forced to slow down. Like my I couldn't take it, you know, to be, to be totally honest. Like I couldn't take the pace. I needed to slow myself down. And what was really interesting is that um, by slowing down, I actually learned a lot of ways to go faster, but it took slowing down to learn those lessons. I had to slow myself down to kind of look around. And it's been very interesting to see how, like, when I slow myself down, I actually wind up learning all of these lessons that help me move appreciably faster when the quote unquote hard time isn't there or whatever the current situation might be changes in some way, shape or form. So maybe that would be the high level piece is just, it doesn't usually feel like the right time to slow down when it usually is the most important time to slow down and simplify things a little bit and see what you can learn. I think that's a great reminder. Jason, I'd like to open up the floor to you. Obviously we'll link uh, anything about the book, whether that's, you know, pre-order link, everything in the description, but just, uh, just open it up to you just to talk about anything. I'll start with a gigantic thanks. Always appreciate somebody peppering me with questions and, uh, you know, interesting to try to kind of package it up in a way that I hope will be useful for folks that are listening. So, you know, thanks for having me on and, and spending some time to think about what you feel would be interesting for your folks and ask questions for the book. You know, I, like I said, really excited to launch it. There's um, there's a pre-order out now. So the book's called Quietly Crushing It. It's all about how to unlock big impact at work without the burnout in life. Um, would love anyone here to have a, have a read. Uh, you can go to my website, which is quietlycrushingit.com. If you feel like that's way too long to type, which I understand, you can go to uh, qcibook.com as well. Uh, you go there. You'll find a pre-order link and uh, it's going to be about 40% off compared to the list price when the, the book um, launches a little bit later this year. You'll get like preview advanced copies if you pre-order now. Um, I do a monthly newsletter where you can get all sorts of tactics, kind of like what we talked about today. Uh, you can get tactics there. I'm realizing that I misquoted the long version of the book. It's um, quietlycrushingitbook.com. I don't even know the own, my own website. That's fun. You can leave that in so people can see the blueprint too. Uh, so it's quietly crushing at book.com or qcibook.com. You can get a pre-order. It's it's on discount and uh, you'll get access to the chapters, some of the chapters now and like monthly tactics that you can put to work right away. And that's awesome. We'll link everything and we'll make sure it's correct in the show notes so it's easy for everyone to get to. <laughs> but Jason, this has been a lot of fun. I, I think the frameworks are super interesting. I'm excited for the book. Um, and yeah, just appreciate you sharing your time with me today. Cool, man. Thanks a ton for having me. And thanks to everybody who's out there listening and, you know, would love, love to hear feedback 
from anyone that's listening either about the book, about what we talked about today. Not hard to get in touch with. You can find me on LinkedIn or through the book. There's a contact form. Just humongous thank you to everybody who's listening. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.